Thanks, everybody. Good morning. How are you? Okay? Great to see you all this morning. As Scott said, my name is Gary. What's yours? Okay, most of you have forgotten your name. That's not a very good start, is it, really? But there we go. And uh, really a uh, pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, apparently, something quite big was happening in London last weekend. Something about platinum and jubilee and stuff. Anybody involved in that? Anybody go and see what was going on? A few people? Yeah, wonderful. Uh, the 70th year of Queen Elizabeth II, Her Majesty's reign. Absolutely wonderful. Watched it mainly on TV last weekend. Quite something. And it reminded me uh, how a few years ago, I was, uh, I was walking into town with my wife. My wife's name is Sally. And uh, we were living in the city of Derby. Anybody ever been to Derby? Okay, otherwise known as the New Jerusalem, <laughs> where the greatest football team in the world come fr- from. Oh, by the, by the way, if there's any multi-millionaires in the building right now, Derby needs a buyer. Okay, we've got a few, we've got a few problems with liquidation and all that stuff. But anyway, so Sally and I, we, we lived quite near to the centre of the city, and we were walking in, and uh, I noticed that there were lots of police officers around that particular morning, and they were wearing their best uniforms and uh, shiny shoes, and uh, most of them had white gloves on as well. So I thought to myself, oh. Um, Something, something special was going on because I'm, I'm, really, I'm really quick like that. And um, so I went up to one of the police officers. I said, excuse me. I said, what, what's going on? And he said, well, sir, he said, uh, Queen Elizabeth II is arriving in our city this morning. I said, really? He said, he said yeah, didn't you know? I said, I'd never heard. He said, well, you're a little bit thick, aren't you? <laughs> I thought that's very rude from a police officer, but never mind. So um, I said to my wife, I said, Sal, I call her Sal. I said, Sal, Her Majesty's coming to Derby this morning. Sally said, and? <laughs> I said, the Queen, she's coming. She said, listen, you do whatever you want to do. I'm going shopping. <laughs> so off she went. And, uh, and the Queen was coming to open a brand new uh, swimming baths in the city. So I went to, over to where it was. And already there was a big queue, a, a big crowd, rather. A big crowd had gathered. I was about 10 back in the crowd and uh, we were all waiting there the police had cordoned off the road and um, suddenly there's like a little rumble in the crowd further down you know a little bit of a noise going on a bit of excitement and we thought here she comes here she comes and we all looked down the road and driving towards us was uh, this this guy on a moped and somehow he'd managed to take a wrong turn and get past the <laughs> police cordon and he's, he's driving along waving at everybody <laughs> so five minutes goes by 10 minutes goes by 15 minutes and then suddenly this great entourage of cars arrive all these black limos arrive on the scene and the first limo is full of all the security guys and in the second one stepping out of the limo her majesty Queen Elizabeth II steps out and the crowd began to go wild, you know. There was a bunch of older women over here. They're going, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. (laughs) And there's a bunch of teenagers over this side. They start cheering and chanting, the queen, the queen, the queen. (laughs) 
Uh, it's incredible. I'm standing there, 10 back in the crowd, and then all of a sudden, Her Majesty turned and looked right at me. She's, lo I, she's looking at me. And it all sort of goes silent. You know, it's like I can't hear the sound around me. Our, our eyes met across. And uh, it, it all goes like, you know those photographs where it's all sort of blurred around the edge? It's like that. I'm looking at Her Majesty. She's looking at me. She starts to speak. She's about 20 meters away. She starts to speak. And I'm trying to lip read. And I'm sure that I lip read, Hello, Gary. <laughs> And the next moment she turns and she walks into the building. But I'll tell you what, I walked home on this pink fluffy cloud, you know, thinking, whoa, I just met the queen. Yeah? Absolutely incredible. Strangely, my wife wouldn't believe it, any of it, but there we go. Now, um, you know, how many of you, I'm sure most of you here this morning, like me, we respect Her Majesty. She's done an amazing job in everything. And uh, what, a, what an incredible privilege it would be. Maybe some of you here have actually met her face to face. Some of you might have met her grandson last week selling the big issue on the streets of London. Did you know Prince William was doing that this week? You bought the big issue, you didn't even realize it was him. Okay, amazing. But here's the incredible thing for us this morning. We have every opportunity, every day of our lives to encounter the King. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the living Lord Jesus, that we live our lives in this, in this constant state of being able to encounter him. Jesus promised for those who follow him, he'll never leave us and he'll never let us down. Isn't that absolutely astonishing? And that's as true for us this morning as at any other time in our lives. What I'd like to do this morning is spend our time exploring and describing what it means for us to live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the deal. Um, God never intended for you to be a Christian. How many of you are praying for the preacher right now? <laughs> God never intended for you to be a Christian. In fact, let's do a little survey. Be interested in a survey. The word Christian is mentioned in the New Testament, but I wonder if you know how many times. Let's, um, let's have a vote. I'll give you a choice. The word Christian is mentioned in the New Testament either three times, nine times, or 97 times. Okay? What do you think it is? Three times, nine times, or 97 times? Right, put up your hand if you think it's three. Put up your hand if you think it's nine. Put up your hand if you think it's 97. Put up your hand if you haven't voted. <laughs> I don't want to get this wrong. <laughs> okay, well, the answer is, and you're obviously a well-taught church here, it's three, three times it's mentioned. And actually, where was the first time that the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, where was the first time that they were called Christians? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Antioch, Acts chapter 13. And actually, when the people called them Christians, they weren't being respectful. You know that. They were being like, it was a nickname 
or even, even they were being derogatory towards the followers of Jesus. Oh, you're the Christians. You're the little Christs. You're the little anointed ones. That's what the word literally means. See? Now, the word disciple. I wonder how many times you think that's mentioned in the New Testament. Or disciple, disciples. Let's have a vote. <laughs> Three times, nine times, 97 times, okay? Hands up for three. Ah, uh, you know there's a trick. <laughs> Hands up for nine. Hands up for 97. Oh. The answer is, the word is mentioned at least 290 times. <laughs> at least. Depending on which version of the Bible you read, it's at least 290 times that we read disciple, disciples. You see, that was the great commission of Jesus to us. So Jesus dies for our sins. God raises him from the dead. He meets with his followers and he says to them, Matthew 28 verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And by the way, one of my friends said, go is two thirds of the name of God. To which I replied, so is odd. What does that prove? But anyway, it's an interesting thought. Jesus said, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic groups, actually, is the, is the word that's used there, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's why the name of the book, Discipleship Lifestyle, how disciples develop disciples. That's what we're called to do. That's what every one of us who follows Jesus is called to do. It's the Great Commission. So if we, look at the, if we look this morning at how to be a disciple of Jesus, where do we even start? Because there's so much to say about this particular area of our lives. Well, you, you could start by buying the book because there's a lot more in the book. But here's the deal. We start actually with our hearts, Okay before anything happens on the outside of our lives in terms of how we live our lives or the words that we speak, it always starts in our hearts. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply about keeping the rules. Hello. Being a disciple of Jesus is not being able to say all, all the right theological wor words. It's something that starts in our hearts. So let's, um, we're going to dive into the Bible. thought that might be useful in church. Okay, so this is Luke chapter 14, and uh, some of you may have Bibles with you, or you'll have it on your devices. We're going to look at Luke chapter 14, uh, starting at verse 25. And really, what I'd like to do this morning is, is focus in on what Jesus has to say about the cost of being one of his disciples. Because if we don't get that thing right, everything else falls apart, okay? Okay. So here's where we're going to go. Luke 14, verse 25. Let me read this to you. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and aren't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, folks, we could carry on because Jesus has got more to say about this whole issue. Uh, but we'll stop just there and uh, look at this together this morning. First thing is this. I want you to notice what the f- first words we read there from Dr. Luke. He said large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So at this point, we have Jesus Christ Superstar. All right, I mean, loads of people were jumping on the Jesus bandwagon. After all, why wouldn't you? Because nobody spoke like this guy, okay? They had their religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, you know, the scribes, and, uh, and sort of words dribbled down their chin. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority, He spoke words of life. Yeah? He spoke truth. And even more than that, he spoke with a fantastic sense of humor. How many of you know the Lord's got a great sense of humor? And sometimes we miss it, I think, because you know when we read the Bible, I hope you do read the Bible and maybe you've seen the film. But here's the thing: when we read the Bible, sometimes the danger is that we read we read it flat. You know, black words on white paper, and we just read those. Or you might have one of those fancy Bibles with some of it in red. Some of the words are in red, you know, and all of that. But we we need to use our imagination sometimes, our sanctified imagination, and get under the surface and see what's going on here and what Jesus is saying. So, for example, Jesus says, it's as hard for a rich man to get into heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And all the religious people go, oh yes, amen. (laughs) It was a joke with a lot of truth behind it. So just think about this for a minute. There's a guy, there's this Jewish man holding a needle like this, right? There it is. And his friends have got their shoulders up the backside of the camel, pushing the camel towards the needle. How many of you know a camel is a horse designed by a committee? Did you know that? (laughs) So this camel's looking around, wondering what's going on. And this guy's saying, come on, boys, if we try really hard, I think we can get the camel through the needle's eye. It's a joke. Maybe we lose it in translation, I'm not sure. Or Jesus says, uh, he says, there's a a shepherd and uh, he's got 99 sheep, he counts them. He's got 99 sheep and they're safe, they're here, but he knows there's one missing. So what does he do? He leaves the 99 at the mercy of every sheep rustler in Palestine and all the wolves that roamed around the area. He leaves them and he goes looking for the one that's lost. And then when he finds it, He puts it on his shoulders. You ever seen the underneath of a sheep? Shoulders? And even then, he doesn't take you back to the rest. He goes into town and finds his friends and says, Hey guys, I lost this one, but I found it again. And his friends say, What about the 99? Where are they? Oh yeah, I forgot. That's bad economics, isn't it? You see... So many people were attracted by Jesus. And it wasn't just because of his words. I mean, 
Miracles, signs and wonders were <laughs> dripping off his fingertips. Yeah? So the deaf heard, the blind saw, the dead were raised to life. It was all happening around him. Man, we want to be close to this guy. Yeah? We want to be around this person. And, and by the way, children, just think about young Ethan. Has he gone? Has he had enough already? <laughs> so, uh, what a cute kid, eh? Oh, amazing. So, um, you know, the kids, they love being around Jesus. Now, I'm a granddad. I've got six grandchildren, which is amazing because I'm only 32. But, um, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I've noticed with my grandkids is this. When we're together, like at parties and stuff, if there, if there are some fun people around, my grandkids gravitate towards the fun people. Do you know what I mean? Uh, they, they want to show them their toys and, uh, and, and, and they want these people to help them build with, their, build with the Duplo. Do you know what Duplo is? Yep. It's, like, it's like Lego that's been on steroids, isn't it? It's like that big stuff. And uh, that's, that's the way it is. Now, what we know is the children, they wanted to come to Jesus. The disciples are saying, no, 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 you've got to go away. And Jesus said, hey, let the kids come. Because the kingdom belongs to them, yeah? See what I mean? So large crowds are traveling along with Jesus. It's easy, isn't it? Isn't it easy to, um, to get swept along with the crowd, yeah? To join in with everybody else. You see, I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here because uh, this is your church and you're a, a regular at Kensington Temple. It could be that this is your first time here on Sunday, like me, yeah? First time you've ever been here. But here's the deal. God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our stories. And the issue is for every one of us this morning, not whether we're here in the crowd, but whether we've ever truly encountered the Lord Jesus. Whether we've ever truly come to that point in our lives where we've made that conscious decision to give our lives to Jesus, to welcome him into our lives because it's possible to be brought up in a Christian family uh, and your parents might be Christians. How many of you know that God does not have any grandchildren? Hello? God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children. Yeah? And he wants every single one of us here today, every single person on the planet, actually, he wants them to be his kids. He wants to be their father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Is that something that's ever happened to you? Because do you know what? It's normal. It's usual to know your dad. Whether that's a human dad. I know there are some sad instances where that's not the case. But it's usual to know your dad. Human or heavenly. Do you know God? Not just being swept along by something, but actually knowing God for yourself. Now here's the deal. One of the things I've always been grateful about with the Lord is this. He's a realist. He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't promise us things that aren't possible. So watch what he does with this crowd. And the living Lord Jesus has something to say to us as well this morning as we're here as a crowd. He turns around. Just imagine for a moment. Imagine you'd have been there on that day and the Lord stops you all, thousands of people, and turns around and you're thinking to yourself, whoa, what's going to happen now? More miracles, more great stories, what's going to happen now? And Jesus hits them. It's like three left hooks to the soul, 
because he wants them to know the truth. And here comes the, what you might call the triple whammy of realism. First thing is this, look what he says to them. It says, he turned to them and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, what on earth is going on here, folks? I mean, what's going, does it mean we leave here today and we go maybe back to our biological family if they're not here today and say, hi guys, I hate you. (laughs) I'm really not on with you guys. You know, I mean, what is going on? Now, of course, what Jesus is doing here is using something called hyperbole. You heard of that? My wife had to explain it to me because she's really clever. I'm not very clever, but I can lift heavy things. And um, I I just thought he said hyperbole because that's what it looked like written down. Hyperbole. In other words, exaggerating to make the case. Exaggerating to, to make the point. Jesus does it on a number of occasions. So, for example, you know, he says, um, he says, if your arm causes you or your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, I don't know about you. I've not seen many one-armed, one-eyed believers walking around in London. Because we understand what's going on here. Jesus is saying, this is serious. This is really serious stuff about how we live our lives. And similarly here, what is Jesus saying? It's obvious, isn't it? He's saying, listen, if you don't love me, meaning if you're not more committed to me, he says, than you're committed to anybody else or anything else, it's not going to work. This, this, this uh, life of faith is just not going to work. Now, my guess would be, if at the end of the service this morning, if I was chatting with you uh, one-to-one, and uh, I said to uh, the majority of you, I said to you, hey, um, can I ask you a personal question, but do you, do you really love God? I think most of you would say, oh, yeah, 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 I do. Uh, with all your heart and soul, mind, strength, oh, yes, hallelujah, amen, praise God, right? The truth of the matter is, sometimes we're playing games. Sometimes we're playing games. So how do you know... How do you know what you're really committed to? I'm saying that love equals commitment. Love is not just a, or not even a mushy feeling first and foremost, yeah? It's about commitment. You know that, don't you? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, huh? until we meet the Lord face to face. That's what love really is. So how do you know? How do you know about your commitment to Jesus or your commitment to anything? Well, actually... It works like this. Where do I spend a lot of my time? Where do I spend a lot of my money? And what do I talk about a lot? Because out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, doesn't it? So I've got a friend, um, just one. (laughs) His uh, His name's Stuart. And Stuart is a crazy Derby County football supporter, okay? I mean, he's not just a fan, he's a fanatic, right? That's the sort of guy that he is. Now, if you were around Stuart for more than, let's say, 90 seconds, you would know about Derby County because it's what he speaks about 90% of the time. He's also a season ticket holder 
for the, for the they're called the Rams, that's what we call them, the, the team. Uh, so he's got that ticket, hundreds of pounds they cost to go to every match, but he also goes to every away game as well. So he spends a lot of his time and energy and money at weekends traveling to various parts of the UK, buying tickets to see his team play and staying in a hotel or whatever he needs to do. See what I mean? He spends his money, he spends his time, that's what he talks about, it's where his energy is spent as well. And that's why you know what's really front and center in his life. Now that, that's part of the challenge, that's part of the reality about whether we're really being disciples of Jesus, whether we've really counted the cost of what it means. Where do we spend our time, our money, our resources? Do we speak about him when we're out there in the big wide world or even in church? Yeah, Those sort of things are really, really important. Now you know as well, the Bible says the great command, we've already mentioned the great commission, the great command says that we're to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And one of the things I've discovered is this, that if I put the Lord Jesus at the center of my life, if that's the center of my commitment, I discover that I love people more. I care about people more. I give more of my time and my energy and my resources to people because I've got the king at the center. Do you see how that works? All right? So that's the first way that he hits them. And my guess would be that when they heard that, some of the people in the crowd drifted away and decided just to go back to their, their old lives because that's too much. But he hasn't finished. Look what he says next. Here's the second thing. He says... Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So you've got to carry your cross. How, how many times do we misunderstand that in the Western world in the 21st century? I've heard people say things like this. They've said, oh, do you know during the winter from about late October through to sort of late February, I seem to get one cold after another, you know, I'm blowing my nose, I'm coughing and stuff like that. Just one after the other, it seems to go on and on and on. Still, I guess that's just um, the cross that I have to carry or the cross that I have to bear. They say things like that. Or somebody who said to me a while ago, they said, one of my work colleagues is such a pain in the neck. They're so hard to work with, you know, they're just, they're just not nice people, they're gossiping, they're, they're negative about everything, and I have to be with this person Monday through Friday every week. Still, I guess that's just the cross that I have to carry. Listen, we haven't understood anything. We really haven't got this. If you'd have been there 2,000 years ago, you would have got it straight away. Because you would have seen people all the time carrying crosses along the road. And if you saw someone carrying a cross, you knew what the end of it was. <laughs> Crucifixion. Okay? That's where they were going. They were going to suffer capital punishment through crucifixion. And so, ladies and gentlemen, here this morning at Kensington Temple, here is the invitation of the Jesus who loves you, who cares for you, who wants the very best for you. The invitation from Jesus is simply this, come and die. Come and die. That's the invitation. Die 
to your own ambitions, your own small ambitions. They're so much smaller than the ambitions that God has for you. Die to your own plans, to your own way of doing things. Put those on one side because God's got more for you. God's got better for you. He knows the plans he has for you. They're good, not for evil. They're plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. But you only get them when you eventually say no to your own ways and say yes to his ways. So we die to ourselves in order that we might experience the resurrection life of Jesus pulsating through our being. Isn't that fantastic? Absolutely wonderful. So the Apostle Paul, who had quite a life, don't you think? I mean, what an adventure that was. Not always easy, but he says this in one of his letters. He says, this is my experience. I have been crucified with Christ, he says, and I no, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you get that? That's the way this thing is supposed to work, where we, we, we take our lives and we offer them fully to God And he takes us as we are and we say no to ourselves and yes to him and then it all begins to kick off. I'm so grateful that uh, when I first said yes to following Jesus, I was uh, 17. Um, I'd never been to church. I'd never been to Sunday school. I don't know anybody in my family who was ever a follower of Jesus before me, even when I try and trace back our family tree. But I was in the sixth form at school and one of the other students, uh, her her name was Alison, her name still is Alison. Um, she, uh, she shared her faith with me. She shared about Jesus with me. I'm so grateful that before I ever said yes, she said this to me. She said, you know what? Following Jesus does not make life easy. It makes life more difficult. It takes some living. She said, it's the best Jesus said it's life in all of its fullness. It's an overflowing, exciting, adventurous, here's the big word, are you ready for this? Scintillating life. That's the life that Jesus has for us, but it takes some living. I'm really glad about that. I don't know about you. I don't want to spend my whole life just just free-falling through this life until I hit the ground. I mean, what's that worth, yeah? But God has so much more for us than that if we choose to die to our own way of doing things. One thing about dead people that I've realized through the years is this. Have you noticed that um, dead people don't give in to temptation? (laughs) If you don't believe me, take some chocolate bars down the nearest cemetery. See how many takers you get, okay? It doesn't work that way. So, you know, I meet so many believers who are like, they're yo-yo Christians, up and down, up and down. And if they're not being yo-yo Christians, they're being hokey-cokey Christians. In, out, in, out, you know. You know, I just, I, you know, I just, I just found myself in this situation. I just found myself doing something I shouldn't do. I just found, well, stop finding yourself and let Jesus find you, for goodness sake. And change things. Amen. 
Now listen, you might say, by the way, what a, what a little happy little message we're having this morning. <laughs> you might say to me, Gary, you know, why should, I even, why should I even think about living this sort of a life? Why should I give it all up for Jesus? Simple, he gave it all up for you. That's how it works. How much did he give for you? 10%, 50%? 70% of his life. Do you know, he gave everything he'd got for you when he died. Yeah? And the way that Christianity works is when we give it all up for him. Yeah? Amen. Last thing I want to say as we draw things to a close is this. His third left hook is this. He talks about counting the cost. Look what he said. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Think about it. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. It's like, um, it's like that Channel 4 program. I don't know if you've ever seen that Channel 4 program called Grand Designs. You ever seen that? Where this person or this couple decide they're going to self-build a house. So uh, they start to do that and they get the foundations in and start putting various things up. And on almost every episode, halfway through, what happens? They run out of money. Okay? And, they, and you get that part where it all becomes jeopardy. Because you always have to have that in every TV program. And by the end of the program, of course, whew, it all works out because they've managed to find some more money from family or maxing out credit cards or whatever it might be, and they get it finished. But you get the point. Jesus is saying, what about if, in terms of living in your relationship with God, all you've got is the foundation, which is Christ, by the way, but you haven't built anything? You haven't built anything on that foundation. I met a guy a while ago, and he said to me, uh, he said, oh, Gary, yeah, I, uh, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. I said, pardon? He said, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. I said, no, you didn't. He said, yeah, I did. I said, no, you didn't. He said, yes, I did. I said, no, you didn't. He said, yes, I did. I said, no, you didn't. If you say yes again, I'm going to punch you. <laughs> Joke. I said, listen, listen, mate. I said, Christianity, it's not like train spotting. It's not like a hobby you take up for a bit and then you drop when you grow up. Although that's not fair. Some older people do train spotting. Hi-ho. Or, um, yeah, it's not like, does anybody still play Candy Crush? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I thought most people had given up. It's not like, that's not the faith, is it? You do something for a while and then you drop it. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Following Jesus, being rescued by Jesus, that's a free gift, but it will cost you everything. It's called a paradox, isn't it? Okay? One last story. I was singing at home a long time ago now, and I was listening to a tape. In fact, I was listening to, it was that long ago, it was a cassette tape. Anybody remember cassette tapes? And you'll know if you had cassette tapes why you needed a pencil. <laughs> Some of the younger people are going, what? What's <laughs> and I was, listening to this, um, I was listening to this tape of a Chinese pastor who'd spent 16 years in a labor camp, Chinese labor camp, on, because he was guilty of being a pastor. 
They'd thrown him into, it's like a concentration camp. And his job for 16 years every day was to clean out the camp cesspit. So every day, two guards would walk him to this, um, this ramp. And he would have to walk down this ramp into the cesspit until he was waist high in all of this human excrement. And then his job was to start shoveling it out. And the, the guards would stand back while he did that. And he's telling the story. And on the tape, you could hear the, the people. It was in the northeast of England. Sort of, you know, the thought of doing that. And he said this. He said, no, no. He said, you don't understand. He said, you really don't, don't understand. He said, for me, it was a joy. He said, because every day when I went down into the cesspit, the guards would stand back and not be anywhere near me. So as I was doing my job, I would sing to Jesus at the top of my voice. And I would praise Jesus and tell him how much I loved him without getting a rifle butt in my face. He said, those moments for me were like heaven. And I, I, I was sitting at home listening to this and I felt my knees go weak. And I remember saying to the Lord, I said, Lord, if I'm really honest with you, I think I would deny you. <laughs> really. And then inside I had that sense of God saying, well, Gary, you don't get the grace until you need it. Okay. Dr. Martin Luther King, the black civil rights leader from the state, said this. He said, the chief purpose for our lives is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. It's to do the will of God, come what may. Can I say that one more time? He said, the chief purpose for our lives is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. It's to do the will of God, come what may. And in terms of civil rights, Dr. Martin Luther King, he did the will of God. And it did cost him his life. But even though the United States is a long way from being perfect today, don't we know it? But it's better because of that man's life. Better than it was because of that man's life. Amen? So how about you and me this morning? Listen, let me just um, say this. Living as a disciple of Jesus is not difficult. It's not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. You and I, we can't do it, can we? We just cannot do it. We don't have the resources to do it. But here is, here is the fantastic news. That God gives us all that we need for life and for godliness. His Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus invading our lives. Saturating our lives. Filling our lives. When we, when we offer our lives to Him, then the power comes. Then the ability comes. So I'm going to ask you this morning to uh, respond, if you feel you can, to this message in this way. You see, the truth is that none of us are the complete package. Is that right? Yeah. None of us have got it all together. But what I'm asking you to do this morning, if you can, is this. In a moment, I'm going to ask you, could you stand and say, Lord, here I am on this basis. Lord, I want to make it my aim. I want to make it my aim to be more committed to Christ. To love the Lord my God more and more and more. I want to make it my aim to die daily to self so I can live in the resurrection life. I want to make it my aim that I will continually 
move on in counting the cost of what it means to be a disciple. Not there yet, Lord, but that's my aspiration. That is what I want to be. That's my heart's desire. And God, with your help, that's my commitment.